Have you ever heard of BTK, the Carr Brothers Massacre, the Clutter Family, or the Poet? These are just a few well-known crimes in Kansas, but there are so many more that have been forgotten. Like my friend and neighbor, Krista Martin, who was murdered on October 1st of 1989, and so many more cases that are still sitting on the shelves waiting to be solved. Hopefully, with your help, we will be able to find the answers to these cases. Join us again at Crime Scene and Cupcakes on your streaming devices, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you might listen. Crime family, welcome back. This is episode 59 of True Crime BB. I'm Bailey. And I'm Beth. And today you're the bad guy, Neener Neener. <laughs> I'm the bad guy, and I am bringing installment nine of Architect Mayhem. Mm hmm. And this one makes me real sad because this guy was such a visionary in his own way. Okay. Oh. And before we get started, I wanted to just take one minute because we haven't really said a lot about our Patreon, but we do have some supporters, Mm -hmm. and we want to thank Elaine, Andy, and Katie for their support up until now. Uh Uh-huh, and as of today, we have a new one, so welcome to the family, Amy. And we thank you very much for being supporters, Mm -hmm. and on with the show. Here we go. So this architect mayhem is from California, San Diego. And he is an architect who was born in Durban, South Africa. Wow. Just like... Malingi. Malingi Gwala. Yes. So, Graham Trouncer Downs was born in 1958 in Durban, South Africa, and he had three brothers growing up. He grew up drawing animals and dreaming of becoming a park ranger. His family and close friends called him Basher because he was a burly, rugged rugby player, Mm -hmm. but his intellect made him interested in everything. And like most highly intelligent people, he wanted to learn about everything. But once he would really investigate something, his interest would start to plateau and he would start looking at other things that he was also interested in. Mm -hmm. And all that happened until he discovered the concept of design, which was unlimited in the avenues it could take him down. And this process ultimately led him to want to become an architect. So he graduated with a degree in architecture from the University of Natal in Durban. His ambition carried him far. At the age of 28, He arrived in San Diego and picked up his rugby game once again at the Old Mission Beach Athletic Club. And then he actually represented the United States in the 1987 Rugby World Cup. Nice. Yeah, so he was a really good rugby player. He's got everything going for him. Yes. People who knew Graham described him as an adventurous man who did no less than devour life. And devour life he did. He risked everything in 1994. Despite having little in the way of funding, he used a credit card to found a design studio that both insisted on world-class design and still remained socially aware and economically sustainable. He went from the act of opening a design firm on a credit card to being one of the top 250 U.S. firms by billing in 2008 and 2009. So over a 14-year period, he went from being completely underwater Mm -hmm. with his firm Mm -hmm. to being one of the top 250 in the whole country. Graham was highly influenced by the Bauhaus, which was a German school of design thought founded by Walter Gropius in the early 20th century. In this school of thought, architectural design was informed by both fine arts and crafts. This design philosophy was the combination of form and color, primarily in how it facilitated and affected movement through space. 
How a person experiences spaces and buildings should be very deliberate. Nothing should be arbitrary or left to chance. Okay. An extraneous ornament for the sole purpose of ornament was not needed, and in fact, it detracted from the design. So what grew into a 40-person firm, Graham Downs Architecture, was a studio-type environment where what you're working on is out in the open, where everybody can see it, where people make comments on the work, where they suggest or ask questions. It's a very collaborative environment, and the envelope gets pushed, the box gets broken out of, and some amazing design work can come together in this way. People are learning from one another, and they symbiotically work towards the solution to design problems. So, over the next 21 years, Graham Downs raised up dozens and dozens of young architects and designers from all over the world as they honed their skills under his guidance. His employees, colleagues, and rivals said that he could be coarse, bossy, pushy, brash, but that he drove them to do great work. That he could be a real pain in the ass, but that the results were worth it. Graham's buildings were fresh, clean, bright, and unpretentious. He was considered a visionary. Graham Downs Architecture had a development arm called Blockhouse, B-L-O-K-H-A-U-S. He was known for boutique hotels and restaurants, retail, and the types of developments that broke the mold of the bland design that had become common in San Diego. So he was revered locally and internationally for the life that he had injected into the area and all of its new construction projects. Mm -hmm. As his reputation grew and his design and development projects were being embraced by the city of San Diego, Graham decided to go into a rundown part of town called the Barrio and to move his offices there. His hope was that using his ability to change the perceptions about the area, that this would lead to more people coming into the area and helping turn the Barrio back into a strong and vibrant neighborhood. Over time, that is exactly what happened. And a lot of people do credit him with that because no one else was willing to put money or time or effort into the barrio because it had become so run down and no one wanted to go there. Yeah, it takes one pioneer who's willing to go in. Exactly. And he did that with several neighborhoods. But I'm specifically mentioning the barrio because that's where he moved his offices to. And firms that work with this kind of deep collaborative creativity tend to be very familial. They work close together. They tend to have family-like relationships. They work hard, play hard, they laugh, they cry, they fight. And they also sometimes socialize together. Many design offices will share a drink or two at the office on occasion. My firm where I work now won't because there's a, it's such a safety component that they would never let you have a drink at the office and then drive home. Yeah. So people were just having a cocktail or a beer together after a hard day of work because it's a very intensive environment. On April the 18th, 2013, the crew at Graham Downs Architecture was doing just that. At the end of the day, there were drinks in the office, and then it was decided that they would move to a bar. So they packed up and they headed to a local bar. As the evening wore on, some people started to leave, but Graham invited those that were remaining to come over to his house and relax with another round of drinks. Those who came along included a couple of women. Their names were Allison McDougall, Bailey Bishop, and then another guy named Igenio Soriano Salgado. As the group talked and became more tipsy and the conversation started to come back around to work, as it almost always does. Well, that's what you have in common with everybody there, you know? Yeah. Igenio, who had a Bachelor of Science in Finance from San Diego State, was not an architect. He was the development manager at Blockhouse Development Firm since 2008, and prior to that, he had been the construction manager at Blockhouse, and before that, he had started as a maintenance man originally for the company. Okay. So he had been working for Graham for nearly 10 years, and during his time in the maintenance position, Igenio had had a supervisor by the name of Simon Terry Lloyd. 
Eugenio had never gotten along with Simon, so when Simon had left the company some time before, Eugenio had been happy and really just relieved that the guy was gone. He had also consistently been promoted into higher positions, so he was building his career here and he kept working his way up. But on the day before this happy hour gathering, Simon Terry Lloyd had been seen meeting with Graham in his office. Eugenio saw this meeting and he was worried that if Simon was coming trying to return to GDA, that it would mean that he might be replaced by Simon, and that reinforced his long-standing hatred of Simon and brought those feelings back to the forefront. So he probably hadn't thought about this guy in a long time, but then all of a sudden he's there in the office and he's like, oh, shit. Dude, just decide right then and there, if that guy's coming back, I'm going to start putting applications elsewhere. And that's the rational way to handle this like an adult, okay? You know, the design community, the development community may not always love each other 100%, but it is a group that knows each other. Yeah. You know, these people have worked together over the years. Simon could just be in there saying, hey, how are things going? That's true. It may not have anything to do with business. It might just be a purely social call. Mm-hmm. And Eugenio just jumped to this conclusion, and then he got wrapped around the axle like a plastic bag, mm-hmm. and he just couldn't let it go. Also, in the stew pot here, mm-hmm. over the years, Igenio's performance had also been criticized by some in the company. Some of the people who worked at Blockhouse had asked Graham to let Igenio go. But Graham stood by him, gave him every opportunity to perform to expectations, and it seemed like things were mostly on a good path. I mean, nobody's ever perfect, but he was doing the job, and Graham was standing by him. Mm-hmm. But on this night, during the happy hour at Graham's house, Somebody, no one recalled who it was, brought up the name of Simon Terry Lloyd, probably because they had just seen him in the office the day before. Okay. The now quite intoxicated Eugenio blurted out, Fuck him! Fuck that guy! Graham, by this point, was also pretty drunk, and nobody was really sure exactly what he said back to Eugenio. But testimony was given by Allison McDougall that Eugenio was leaning across the bar, getting into Graham's face, being belligerent, yelling about how he didn't like Simon, that Graham had better not be thinking of hiring him back and say, I hate that guy. He's obviously made himself clear how he feels about Simon Terry Lloyd. Yeah. Graham was trying to calm things down, told Igenio not to stress about it, that Simon was not coming back to the company. The subject finally cooled off and was dropped, at least in conversation. Igenio was full of liquid courage and the thought about Simon Terry Lloyd was just still simmering in his mind. As the co-workers all began to leave, Igenio waited around to bring it all back up again with Graham. So when the group had gone outside to say their goodnights and everybody started to leave, Igenio watched the last of them leave and mentioned Simon Terry Lloyd again to Graham. He was mad. He felt betrayed that Graham had been talking to Simon. And as he worked himself into a fury, he physically attacked Graham. Eugenio Soriano Salgado was only five foot five, but he weighed about 300 pounds. So he was a burly guy with a lot of leverage. Mm-hmm. He was also 24 years younger than Graham. Graham was taken by surprise. He was not in a sober state, whereas he could adequately defend himself. And he was beaten. He got the hell beaten out of him by Eugenio until he was unconscious on the street in front of his house. Graham, like I said, was seven inches taller, but 40 pounds lighter. His blood alcohol content was also found to be 0.23, which is about three times the legal limit for driving. So he was quite drunk, but he was also at his home. He was not expecting to have to defend himself against a drunken battering by his enraged employee. 
not just his employee, at this point, after you've worked closely with someone for a decade, that's your friend, you well, know? Yeah, you, you've invited him into your home. You think you can trust this person. And it's one of those situations where, yeah, you probably realize they're hitting me, they're doing this to me. I'm just confused, especially if you're drunk. Just like Marty Hill. Exactly. What's going on? Why Why are you doing this? Surely there's a reason that makes sense. But well, to Eganio, I'm sure it made sense. Yeah, but... A, ma- a neighbor then heard the sound of all this arguing outside, and by the time they looked outside, they could see Eganio literally on top of Graham in a completely one-sided fight, just pounding the hell out of him. Mm-hmm. The neighbor called 911. A single police officer first arrived on the scene, and he found both men lying in the street. Eugenio was lying face down, and he had his arm wrapped around Graham. Like, oh, now my buddy, what did I do? Photos of Eugenio that were taken of him later that night did not show any injuries, implying that Graham didn't even fight back, mm-hmm. or if he did, that Eugenio was not injured. Graham still had a pulse when paramedics arrived to take him to the hospital. This attack wasn't just a couple of punches. Graham suffered between 17 and 21 wounds, and so he probably got more pounds. You know, he probably got hit more times than that, but 17 or 21 wounds consisting of blunt force head and neck trauma, as well as multiple skull fractures from having his head bashed against the concrete sidewalk. And so he was placed on life support, but two hours after the attack, he was declared to be brain dead. Eugenio Soriano Salgado was arrested and taken to the South Bay Jail early in the morning of April the 19th. By the time that his booking was complete, his blood alcohol level was 0.15, and it was estimated that at the time of the attack, it would have been about 0.2. So he wasn't as drunk as Graham. Eugenio was initially booked on first-degree attempted murder with bail set at $3 million because he had ties to Mexico and he was in the process of building a house there. So he was considered to be a flight risk and he pled not guilty. Graham Downs was taken off of life support the following Sunday, April 21st, 2013. The Old Mission Beach Athletic Club rugby team presented a public memorial to Graham the week after his death and donations from their game that week were used to start the Graham Downs Scholarship Fund. In April 2014, Eugenio Soriano Salgado stood trial and was found guilty by a jury of second-degree murder, and in July of that year, he was sentenced to 15 years in prison. At his sentencing, he did apologize to the Downs family and said he knew that Graham Downs had been a great man and that he had admired him. The judge then chided him for attacking the man who had supported him and looked out for him against the wishes of others who wanted Eugenio to be cut free from the company. For real, I mean, he's the only one who's been on your side this whole time. Yeah. Well, and obviously he's got a problem getting along with some people. Maybe not everyone. Maybe Simon was the problem, but... But if a handful of other people have come forward and said, I really don't think you should keep him on, then you're probably the problem. Just saying. Yeah. So, while like most great architects, he could be stubborn and driven, he was also widely loved and respected, appreciated and revered. So much so that one of his architects actually gave his son Downs as his middle name in homage to Graham. His firm made a statement after his death that, quote, Graham was a brilliant designer, creative visionary, and vivacious, strong, and kind leader. From the Blockhouse.com website, quote, Graham leaves a legacy of innovative and exceptional designers to carry on his vision and advance the Bauhaus way. We will remember him for his passion for design, his unfaltering integrity, his thirst for knowledge, and his lust for life. And there are dozens of buildings that still stand in our testament to his design skills and his vision. 
The buildings and interiors that came from his mind shape space, light, mood, and life experiences. And it's terribly sad that this great architect with amazing vision and who grabbed life in his fist was pummeled into a sidewalk because a guy was insecure about someone he didn't like. It wasn't about Graham. It was about this guy that had nothing to do with this company anymore. What the hell is wrong with the human ego, you know? Design ego can be obnoxious. We all know the reputation that architects have big egos. And there's a lot of truth to that because that's a creative ego. That's confidence that I'm doing the right thing. My, my vision of this is the right way to go. You have to have that or you can't be an architect. Yeah, if you're not proud of what you're putting out there, then why yeah, do it? You know? Right. Usually that kind of ego creates a really good building in the end. Mm-hmm. But the other side of ego is this fragile side that gets scared or angry or lashes out at somebody over stupid shit like this. How many murders have happened in the world because of this insecurity? Weird territorialism, you know? Yes. How many murders have happened because of this, and how many more are there going to be? And this really, really gifted architect is just... I mean, he was 55 or 56. I can't quite pin down what he was. Just gone. Just gone, and he still would have had his best days ahead of him. (sighs) His best designs would have been in the future because he was getting better and better and better. Well, of course, you learn a little bit more. It's one of those career paths where every year that you're in that, you learn a little bit more and you get a little bit better. It's not just, you never really hit a plateau of learning in that career. And Yeah. Oh, that's and heartbreaking. That's the story of Graham Downs' murder in 2013, and it's just tragic. I am leaving it up to you to dig us out of the hole that I just dug us into. I'm really going to try. Mine is not all happy sunshine, though, so. It, yeah, because most of your survivor stories are all happiness and sunshine. I gotta make you give up on humanity a little bit for a second every time. Well, I've given up on humanity a long time it's ago. It's been a year. Yeah, we're done. <laughs> I'm going to tell you today the survival story of Kirby Morrill. Kirby was originally from New Brunswick, Canada. Okay. Which is one of my favorite places. Beautiful there. But she was actually on the rugby team. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> in college. And it is a she, so that just shows you how badass she already is. Because rugby is not an easy sport. To no, do. it was a co ed rugby team? Or was it a men's rugby team and she just was that good? That was unclear. I'm not okay. entirely sure. There wasn't a whole lot of, on her backstory. But rugby is a tough sport, regardless. Yeah, and they think a lot of how she handles what's going to happen to her was because she learned to take the punches and then just keep going. Yeah. She also, in college, she studied science with a focus on marine biology. Oh, wow. I just have a simple bullet point here saying she also had a husband named Alan because he comes up one more time and that's all the mention I ever saw about him. Okay, so clearly he's a big player in this story. He's not there for it, but he does come up one more time, so thought I'd mention Being from New Brunswick, she had heard about a mountain in Maine, which is the highest peak in Maine, called Mount Katahdin. Since she was a little kid, that was like the go-to hiking spot for everybody in the surrounding area. Okay. And since she was a lover of the outdoors, I mean, she was a marine biology major, she obviously liked that, and a fantastic athlete, she decided in her early 20s, I'm going to climb that damn mountain someday. I hope she wasn't looking for marine biology samples up on the mountain. (laughs) No. But as she started researching it, you know, she's finishing up her college time, and she said, well, that would be a great opportunity once I graduate to finally go do this in the summer in between, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. 
So she starts researching the mountain and where the appropriate trails would be and quickly discovered that this mountain was the very last stop on the entire Appalachian Trail. Oh. From Georgia to Maine. And she said, well, if I might as well go all in and do the whole Appalachian Trail and just walk my way all the way back north and then I'll end up right by the border of my town in New Brunswick. It doesn't seem like hiking the Appalachian Trail is usually a... Oh, I think I'll do that now. Well, it wasn't. It just became, it slowly turned into that as she did research about how she was going to do this. And then she decided, I'll wait. She waited about a decade before she completed this. Oh, okay. So she started researching this mountain and then it turned into, no, I'm going to do the whole goddamn trail. Okay, that makes sense. And just a mention to anybody who is not from North America and doesn't necessarily know about the Appalachian Trail. I believe it's about 5,000 kilometers there was just a statistic that about 25% of hikers who try this hike to go from the very beginning to the end, only 25% end up making it. Mm-hmm. And that's not like they die. That just means they right. wave the white flag and said, I give up, you know. Yeah, well, a lot can go wrong. You know, your supplies yeah. can go wrong. You can get an ankle injury. You can run into a bear. Right? Yeah. So finally, after completing her Master's of Science in 2018, 28-year-old Kirby set pen to paper, and in March 2019, she flew out to Atlanta, Georgia, to begin her once-in-a-lifetime journey of the Appalachian Trail. She would be traveling mostly solo, but with the help of various apps that she had downloaded to prepare herself and to connect her with other fellow travelers doing the Appalachian Trail, she wouldn't be completely alone most of the way. She anticipated this, like I said, she got there in March to Atlanta, and then she anticipated to come back and be in Maine by early fall. Okay. By May, she had made it to the one-quarter mark of the way up the trail Mm -hmm. with no major setbacks at all. She had gotten notifications on her hiking app, however, alerting her to reports of a man nearby who seemed to be mentally unwell and had threatened multiple other hikers in the area. Oh, well, that's good. It's like uh, ways for the Appalachian Trail. Be on the lookout. Nothing of too much concern, but just keep your eye out for this Mm -hmm. type of thing. Interesting. That started in the beginning of May, so like around May 1st, May 2nd. She started getting those notifications, and so she looked up what the man was wearing and his description. She said, okay, noted, back of my head, I'll keep my eye out for this. Mm -hmm. Apparently, the man had just been arrested for pulling a 17-inch knife on somebody on the trail, but he didn't actually hurt them. He still got arrested, but they had to release him later. Was he going the same direction she was or the opposite direction? He was all over. He was not going, it was, he was going in circles, it sounds like. He was just walking up and down the same part of trail. I see. He was just, he was hovering around menacing people. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't really know where he was going to be at any given point, but they're like, hey, you're now entering the area where this guy has been seen a lot recently. Okay. So just heads up. All right. That makes sense. On May 8th, Kirby woke up in her camp to find that most of her food stash had been rummaged through and was now gone. Pretty quickly, she determined, based on, like, all the paw prints around, a bear had come through and completely just taken her entire food stash. Yep. (laughs) A bear did it. A bear did it. She saw that her food was gone, saw the bear tracks, and she's like, well, shit. And she ended up meeting some other hikers nearby, explained to them what had happened, and they gave her enough food to keep going on the journey until she could get to a pit stop where she could veer off and get some food. That was nice. At At least she had food for the bear rather than the bear trying to eat her. Yeah. As she continued on with her new, very small, but at least she had a supply of food, she got back on the app and connected with another hiker in the area who offered to meet up with her at a, it was like a truck stop restaurant 
that she could just go in and meet her there. And she would give her a whole new replenished food supply pack. And so Kirby said, all right, great. I'll meet you at that restaurant on this day. Just whenever you get there, I'll be there all day. What do they do? Like cash up each other to... I guess, or Venmo, yeah. And as she waited for this new friend to arrive, she looked out at the main road from the windows of the restaurant and saw a man who perfectly matched the description of the unhinged person the alerts had been warning her of walking in the direction of the restaurant. Oh, boy. She wasn't sure that this was the exact man, but she was like, you know, I have some internet connection on my cell phone. I'm going to go ahead and look up that guy's name and his mugshot just to, I'd feel better if I did. Yeah. And so as she pulled it up, she realized, oh shit, that is that man. Upon confirming his identity, she decided to not wait there any longer for her friend. She didn't feel safe as a solo hiker alone. And so she got up and left without ever having to interact with him. She just passed him on the way out. Oh, so he was coming into the restaurant. She didn't want to, like, make eye contact where he would notice her and then follow her. Yeah, he had been known to just, if you even said hi or something, he would hone in on those people. And that's what they were saying in the app warnings. So she was like, I don't even want to fuck around and find out, you know? Yeah, but I don't know. I would think you're probably safer in the restaurant than you are out on the trail. Well, she just passed him and then kept going. And he just kept going back into the restaurant. So she's like, all right, sayonara. Okay. Before she left the restaurant, though, she did write a note. There was a trail register at the register. Does that make sense? Yeah. So she wrote a note warning people who were to come after her. Hey, this guy that's in here right now, I spotted him. Check this app. He's dangerous. Be aware. Just to let people know. Yeah. And then she sent a quick text to her husband, Alan, back home, telling him that she had... about him. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I told you. She texted him just to let him know, hey, just so you know, I ran into that guy, so I'm kind of going to hurry my ass to the next campsite. Mm -hmm. And her husband responded back, run away, have fun, please don't get murdered. Yikes. And that's the last text he he sent to her. Okay. That evening... May 10th, 2019, Kirby made it to her next campsite with a sense of relief as three other people had chosen that campsite to hole up for the night. And one of them being a man she had run into previously, he'd been the guy who'd given her all the extra food after the bear had come. He's like, oh, it's this freeloader again. (laughs) (laughs) His name was Ron Sanchez Jr. He's a 43-year-old army vet and he had started the hike. They'd talked a lot throughout this journey together and he started the hike after getting out of the army because he had PTSD and he just wanted to be out in nature and thought that would be a nice way to heal. So she saw Ron here at this camp and she said I was a little uneasy after I ran into that guy back at the restaurant but I felt better. I have an army vet who I know for a fact is a decent human who's here with me. Yeah so because he's already helped me once. He's already helped me And as everyone sat around decompressing at the campfire for the night, just getting ready to turn in, talking about their day and stuff, another random figure approached the site. I know who that's going to be. Kirby quickly recognized him as the man she'd seen earlier in the day. And as she looked around, she was kind of checking everybody's face and nobody seemed to know him. He had no reason to be there. He didn't have a tent or anything in that area. Mm -hmm. They just decided to ignore him and hope he'd go away on his own. The man simply walked around the campsite for 30 minutes singing to himself and just grumbling under his breath. And they kind of all were growing uneasy, like, this guy is definitely not stable. We don't know what's going on. And so finally, everyone decided to return to their tents, hoping that once they put out the campfire and turned out all the lights and stopped talking, he would just get bored and move along the road. 
After everyone had pretended to go to bed, the man proceeded to walk up to the tents one by one and made threatening comments to each camper describing how he would kill them while they slept. And finally, after getting the cold shoulder, he did move along and went back into the forest all by himself. Oh, I can't imagine why they don't want to just invite him in. Yeah. Why won't you guys be my friends? All I said was I want to light you on fire. Like, oh my god. Yeah. What that a- would be super scary. Yeah. And of course, nobody was actually asleep. They're all terrified. After watching him walk off into the forest, the group rejoined by the campfire and made the decision that they were all going to pack up their camp and walk to the next one together because nobody wanted to sleep there anymore because he knew where they were now. Yeah. How far apart are these, do you know? I believe they said about 10 kilometers. They aren't going to sleep anyway, so they might as well make some progress. Just as everyone finished their packing, the strange man suddenly reappeared. Two of the hikers managed to run into the woods and got away by running north further to the next camp. Unfortunately, that left Kirby and Ron cornered at the site. The man lunged at Ron first, holding that 17-inch knife he'd been seen earlier with. That's a big honking knife. That's a machete. Yeah, that's what people said when they made the reports. It was a knife, maybe a machete. They weren't exactly sure what it was. They lunged at Ron holding this large knife, stabbing him multiple times, and then quickly turned on Kirby. She went to move backwards to get away from him and ended up falling down because she had her entire camp, everything that she had on this journey, on her back, and it was over 30 pounds. So when she misstepped backwards, she fell on her back, and now she was anchored to the ground. She couldn't get herself back up. Yeah. And there's so many straps and buckles on those things that probably she couldn't just shed the backpack and run. Exactly. Especially because as soon as she fell on her back, he lunged on top of her. He's now on her with a knife and her first mission isn't get up. Her mission is to not be stabbed, you know? Yeah. The man switched from stabbing to punching her pretty quickly and Kirby realized that if she kept fighting back, he wasn't going to get tired, and so she made the hard decision to play dead and stop reacting to every stab and blow he gave to her. I can't imagine how hard that would be. Yeah, just imagine? lay there and let somebody punch you in the face. And stab you. Oh, I thought he was only punching you. He started switching in between, but there were times when she was playing dead that he would stab her, and she just had to be like, brace and take oh my it. God. Yeah. That's super, superhuman. There were no lights around. I told you, they already put out the campfire and it's middle of the forest. So it was nearly impossible to see as he finally got off of her and stood over her. She doesn't even know how long. He just stood there watching her to see if she was breathing or if she would move. And Mm -hmm. once she felt like she heard him walk away, she kind of opened up her eyes and was trying to get used to the dark and see if he was around. And finally she determined, I think he's far enough. I'm going to have to get up and go at some point. Just the fact that she even thinks, I can get up and go, that's amazing right there. Yeah. When he was satisfied that they had been killed, the man wandered off back into the woods, and Kirby jumped to her feet. In complete survival mode, she went through a thousand options in her head about, what do I do next? Do I try to offer aid? Do I go try to catch up with the people who ran off ahead of me? Do I go backwards to the place where I know for a fact there are people staying and people that I know? And she finally decided that she would backtrack down south because the man had gone north. Okay. And she said, I definitely know there's a camp that way, 10 kilometers. I know my way that way, and I know people down there, so I'm going to go that way. And it sounds like it was so dark, she couldn't even find Ron. She had no idea if he'd gotten up and run away too. Wow. At this point, she was on her own completely. And running through the woods, you run the risk of tripping. You run the risk of running into things, falling in a hole, getting a stick in your eye as you're going. 
And can you imagine, I wouldn't want to be in the woods hiking in the middle of the night. Better yet, there's a maniac out there somewhere. And you know you have to get 10 kilometers before you see another human being. I can't imagine the fight or flight that would put you in. Yeah, that's terrifying. So she began walking in the dark. At this point, Kirby didn't know how hurt she was, just that she was hurt and something felt like it was not good, you know? That dread feeling in you of something's hurt and I'm scared to look. She knew that she needed to get help because she did know she was absolutely just covered in blood. As she walked, she began noticing things one by one, first being that she could not move her right arm at all. There was not even a little bit of mobility. Mm Mm-hmm. And then she tried to move her left arm after that, and she had limited movements. She could only move it a certain degree. Based on those two things <clears> you <throat> just said, and the fact that she's got on a 40-pound backpack, and she was mm-hmm. lying down on the ground, it's amazing she was even able to get herself standing up. I know. Because yeah. she was so top-heavy with that backpack. I know. And she had no arms. No arms to assist her at all. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know how she did that. On top of both of her arms not really working, every time she took a step, she saw blood shooting from her legs, so she knew they had hit some major artery in her leg, because every time there was a little spurt that she would take a step. Wow. As she started to realize how much blood she was losing, that she wasn't going to make it the 10 kilometers if she just kept bleeding out, she stopped for a moment on the trail and attempted to patch herself up with duct tape that she had in her With one arm. Yeah. But that proved difficult with only one semi-working arm and the amount of blood already on her skin made the adhesives not work. And even though she kept trying to replace it, it kept falling off along the path. And she eventually decided, I give up. I'm just going to keep going and because stopping every 10 minutes to put more duct tape on is not going to help. Wow. Poor thing. That's got to be so scary. And she is such a sweetheart. She, in her interviews later, she talked about how guilty she felt leaving the duct tape trails because she didn't want to risk bending down to pick it up, but she always, as a nature lover, tried to leave the trails as she found it, and that was, like, her main point of guilt. Yeah, leave no trace. Yes. After a grueling three hours of hiking, Kirby made her way into the populated camp in Wythe County, Virginia. They immediately life-flighted her to a hospital in Tennessee. She discovered she was very lucky to have survived this. Yeah, we could have guessed that by the spurting (laughs) from her leg. We already knew. She had suffered nine stab wounds, that's just near major organ stab wounds, and 40 separate slicing lacerations to her face, neck, body, everywhere. She also, once she got to the hospital, learned that Ron Sanchez Jr. had not survived the attack. Aww. Yeah, because he tried to help her so, he he was a nice guy and all he did, all he wanted to do was help her. Alone in the woods with a maniac stabbing you. See, I don't know... They kind of made it sound like he maybe got life-flighted too, and maybe he was still alive when they found him, because all of the articles I read said later died of his injury. So I think he might have been at the hospital, so I don't think he necessarily died alone, but I can't imagine. I think they probably wouldn't have found him still with a pulse if she hadn't done this 10-kilometer walk that's terrifying, injured the way she was. So, I don't know. Only hours after the attack, the police were able to find the attacker nearby, and he was identified as 30-year-old James Jordan. At the time, he was deemed unfit to stand trial and was instead put into a mental health facility until they could figure out what was going on. The recovery for Kirby was slow and painful, but Kirby, who was no stranger to pushing herself and overcoming physical and mental pain put in the work to gain back the use of her arms and muscles that had taken blows from the knife. Yeah. 
two of the hikers that had become friends with her, these two hikers ended up contacting her while she's in the hospital and said, well, we're going to keep going. We're going to hike it all the way up to that mountain in Maine you wanted to climb. And if you're feeling up to it by then, we want you to join us at the base of the mountain that day. Yeah, and, she... and take a couple bodyguards. <laughs> <laughs> so she told them, you know what? I The doctors are telling me I won't be up to it, but I'm up to it. So I promise you, you call me, <laughs> you're going to make me cry. Sorry. Yeah. You have the mom proudness in your eyes. I... <laughs> <laughs> she said, rain or shine, call me when you get near there and I'll get back up there. By the time they got there in September, she had already flown back. She was living in Nova Scotia at this point with her husband. So she's back in Nova Scotia, not too far off from this mountain in Maine. So she told them, I'm still up for it. When you guys get to the mountain, let me know. And finally, they did in September. Oh, so they only wanted, they were only asking if she wanted to actually climb the mountain, not go back to Virginia. Yeah, no. And, and finish the Appalachian no. Trail. They said, you're healing, and it's going to take us months to even get to this mountain. But yeah. this was the thing that brought you to this trail in the first place. At least accomplish that whole yeah. journey. Yeah. You know? And together, the three hiked to the top of the mountain that had led Kirby on this incredible journey. And she had a quote. She said, I started the trail and I finished the trail. I just skipped a big part in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) And I have this. I'm going to send it to you as soon as we finish because I want to post it to our Instagram. But there's her with her friend, the hiker. She's the one on the left. Aw, it's amazing Mm -hmm. that she was able to recover enough to climb a mountain. Wow. Good job. She's amazing. In 2021, Jordan, the attacker, was found not guilty by reason of insanity and has been placed instead into psychiatric care, and they don't really have a release date for him determined yet. As far as completing the trail completely, Kirby still plans to do it someday. And she had one quote that I wanted to end with. She said, I wasn't scared the first time, and I won't be scared the second time. And even if I was scared, are you really going to let a little fear stop you from what you want to do in life? Yeah. I well, love her. She's such a positive person. She's super positive. She's super determined. She's mm-hmm. super ambitious. So whatever she decides to do in her life, she's going to make a go of it. You know? And she's not going to say, well, that could be hard. That could be scary. She's not that person. Mm-hmm. I mean, to even set out on your own to hike the Appalachian Trail, that's just... In a country that's not even your country. That's She's in a whole new... Oh, that's true. See, I think... <laughs> I, I don't even think really of a of that much of a difference between Americans and Canadians, except not. for the crazy ones that are Americans. But as far as things like hospitals, and that is a scary thought. Like, if something goes wrong, I'm in a country that I'm not familiar with completely. Right, but you have that anytime you go out of your own country. Anytime you leave your own country, you have to be aware of what will happen if you have a, a medical emergency and it's mm-hmm. not it's not always as easy as saying my insurance will cover it because a lot of time it won't so that's true it must be even scarier because i'm american i'm used to the fact that if i have to go to the hospital i better need to go to the hospital or else i'm never recovering financially from that situation but imagine being someone who's from a country where you have universal health care and coming here and being like i hope to god i don't get killed or hurt in yeah. any way like oh you're hurt sorry you're out of luck <laughs> That'll be $2 million. <laughs> and not Canadian dollars. It's, not Canadian. Canadian. it's U.S. dollars. <laughs> wow. Well, good for Kirby. I'm very proud of her for having the, the survivor spirit and the won't quit spirit. Because that's... And you know what, though? Had Ron not been there and had they not stuck together, mm-hmm. 
I don't suspect for one second that he wouldn't have killed Kirby. Yeah. He's only 43. Wow. Poor guy. It just says a lot as a single female hiker to see an older man and be like, I can tell by the way you are that I'm safe with you. Well, and the fact that he came back and he had these these mental nightmares mm-hmm. from PTSD, from being at war, and to come back and still have that mama bear attitude where I will protect these younger people. Mm-hmm. I will help them be safe. And and to have that attitude and then to lose your life in trying to keep people safe, I just, I have a lot of respect for Ron. It's a lot about him as a person. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that is about all I can handle out of you today. Okay. <laughs> As usual, we can be found on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at True Crime BNB. And you can send us an email at truecrimebnbpod at gmail.com. And until next week, bye guys. Thanks, guys. Bye. Okay. You look like a skater boy. <laughs> I feel like I have my little mohawk going on. Here, right? She was a skater boy. I said, see you later, cow. <laughs> Oh, God, so mean. <laughs> Welcome to week Wait, 15. Oh, you uh, overshot me. Okay. So did you press play or I no? did, but it was in the middle of what you were saying. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that sound was. <laughs> what are we doing right now? <laughs> I remember my first podcast recording. <laughs> Do you want me to sing for you a little bit? I don't. Okay. Thanks, though. And I just have a bullet point here. I am so proud. I can't even remember what I was saying. (laughs) (laughs) Little things in life. I don't think black bears attack people. It was a brown bear. Black attack, brown run, I think. I think I heard that on Parks and Rec, so I could be wrong. (laughs) Maybe we can take a mashup of all of Puss's meows and then put it to techno music and make it like a remix. I'll leave that to you. (laughs) 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 If I really got bored and a couple glasses of wine, I think I could make something fun.